Hello everyone and welcome to Wavelength, the IUVA podcast. Today we are diving into the topic of per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, more commonly known as PFAS. This class of compounds is receiving widespread regulatory and research attention due to their potential health effects and presence in ground and surface waters. So today I will be speaking with two guests on that topic to learn where these compounds come from, why they are such a challenge, how they can be removed from drinking water, and what research is telling us about the future of PFAS control. My first guest today is Dr. Erin Mackey. She's a supervising engineer and the UV technology lead at Brown and Caldwell. She has over 20 years of experience in a variety of water treatment and reuse projects, ranging from UV and adsorptive process design to regulatory compliance. Hello, Dr. Mackey. Thanks so much for being on the show. Hi, glad to be here. So this episode is going to be about uh, PFAS. And to start with, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you if you can clarify, because we hear a lot about PFOS, PFOA, PFAS. Can you explain to us what the terms refer to? Right. Yeah. It's a, you hear a lot of discussion of PFAS or PFOA, uh, et cetera. And, you know, and so we, you hear a lot of times people talking about PFAS and it, it sounds like they're indicating a single uniform class of compounds. Uh, but the truth is the chemical family under the PFAS umbrella is huge. Um, it's thousands of, of chemicals and many factors can affect the fate and treatability of those chemicals because they are, while they have some similar characteristics, they're not identical. Um, so so um, sort of give you a little more detail, per and polyfluoral alkyl substances, which is what PFAS stands for, are a group of more than 5,000 synthetic, um, you know, human-made uh, chemicals manufactured and used in a variety of consumer products and industries throughout the world. You, you see them all over. Um, and the thing that the commonality among them is they share these fluoride bonds, these urban chains, which fluor, with fluorides attached, which are among the strongest in nature. Um, thus that long longevity of PFAS compounds in the environment. Um, and Right. And, and this is important. So this characteristic really is one of the critical things about PFAS that makes them so useful in a range of pro- products, right? It's because they are yeah. long-lasting, but they, that also, you know, as a result that, you know, because nothing is free, uh, also makes them persistent and difficult to break down. So you mentioned that they are used in consumer products. What are like the main purposes or main uses of PFAS? Um, yeah, so you'll see them in a wide range of different things. Um, industrial processes to make fits, you know, like stain proofing, um, clothing uh, for waterproofing, stain proofing, fabrics for furniture, paper packaging for food and, and other materials like cookware uh, that are resistant to water, to grease, anything, you know, resistant to water, resistant to grease, resistant to stains, you know. So, you know, Gore-Tex is one brand uh, for waterproof materials you'll be familiar with, Teflon. Um, you see them, one of the things that you'll see discussed a lot where it's used a lot is in firefighting foam. And uh, one of the reasons for that is because fighters, you know, at, at, at airports and other facilities are required to test the material and to practice with it. So if there is a fire, they can put it out, you know, efficiently and, and quickly. 
and preserve life and and um, and infrastructure. But um, these two have P, uh, they have historically had PFAS chemicals in them and would have been washed down and and that's how you can find them in the environment. Yeah. So you already mentioned one way how they get in, into the drinking water or into our water sources. Mm -hmm. And another concern is that's actually why we discuss PFAS that they have adverse health health effects on humans and it is not very clear how they affect us. Can you talk a little bit about the toxicity or the dangers that they pose? Sure. So, you know, one of the concerns about PFAS compounds is that, you know, that they've been shown to bioaccumulate. Notice that like as you take in some of your body, it's not necessarily effectively it can take mm -hmm. a while for it to, to be eliminated again. Um, so, uh, you know, and you do find it in urine, feces, breast milk. Um, there's concern about fetal transfer, hair and nails. You know, it can take uh, essentially years for the longer carbon chains like the C C8, for example, eight carbon chains to eliminate from the body, um, but only days for these shorter chains like C4, four carbon chains, uh, comparatively speaking. In terms of um, toxicology, there's really limited toxic toxicity information for most substances, in part because there are so many. Um, the most toxicity data exists for PFOS and PFOA, PFOS, PFOA. Um, studies indicate that exposure to sufficiently elevated levels of certain PFOS compounds may cause may cause a variety of health effects, including developmental effects in fetuses and infants, effects on the thyroid, liver, kidneys, certain hormones hormones and the immune system. Um, some studies suggest a cancer risk may also exist in people exposed to higher levels of some PFAS. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of work being done right now by scientists and regulators um, working on studying these compounds and better understanding the health risks posed by exposure to them. So there's a lot of data still, you know, a lot of research still ongoing, collection of data, and our, our understanding is really evolving which if you're, you're following the media, um, you know, that might, uh, I think that can become apparent. And with them being so dangerous, uh, how big would you say is the problem of uh, contaminated water sources or bioaccumulation of these compounds? Well, you know, I'm not a toxicologist, so I don't know that I'm really, um, I, I don't think I'm qualified to comment on, you know, in terms of, um, of health hazard, yeah. um, but I can say in terms of um, where we find them, they are, we do find them widely across the environment at, at uh, gen typically at very low levels. Um, but um, you will find them, you know, in some private and public water supplies, farmlands where biosolids are applied, um, food supplies, consumer products, and um, in the air from incinerators. It would be interesting to know if there's uh, contaminated sources you mentioned, like in areas where there's a lot of monitoring and sampling going on, what would be the level of contamination in, let's say, groundwater or surface waters? Oh, um, so sites like that are that need to undergo remediation, you know, not for, you know, the sites that, you know, where you you wouldn't be or shouldn't be using as drinking water sources. I think you could find them um, in the hundreds up to the thousands of nanograms per liter. I haven't really dug into the um, their, um, the remediate, uh, you know, uh, sites where they do remediation because I work primarily on the municipal side mm -hmm. and drinking water. 
and there you're more seeing when when they're they're seeing detections. Um, what I've seen, and it's anecdotally, but generally in the neighborhood of maybe less than five nanograms per liter, up to you know in the range of you know, maybe twenty to eighty. Um, and you know, to a much lesser degree, occasionally you'll see concentrations up to the hundreds, but that's been in my experience from looking at data anecdotally. Pretty it's probably in isolated um, areas, like maybe where a lot of uh, training for firefighters has been going on, or something like this. Yeah. So yeah. So for example, a place where Cal State of California has been, um, they've had uh, been putting a lot of focus, you know, regulators on having more data gathered is groundwater wells around airports uh -huh. and places where they they have firefighting training because there you know that's a place where people have been working with these PFAS chemicals out in the open um, for a while and sort of trying to to get a better understanding of what occurrence is you know, close by to those to help inform uh, the bigger picture. And how they behave in, inside the water system. Yeah, and, and how much do you see and, you know, uh, different proximities to sort of characterize what's what's out there uh, better. Okay. But, you know, I have seen data, generally data collection is, is always expanding and our understanding is growing fast. So it can be hard to keep up with sometimes. So since you're in the U.S., what does the government do there? Is there like an action plan or something like that in place? Yeah. So um, EPA uh, released um, their PFAS action plan recently, and there's a lot of actions on the the drinking water side, but kind of going back and reviewing what EPA has been, been doing over the years, they've uh, been doing a lot of, we, you know, in the U.S., a lot of work has been going on for data collection. So um, at the federal level, you know, under the Safe Drinking Water Act, EPA issues so regularly every five years, issue a list of yeah. up to 30 unregulated contaminants and sample to sample for in public water systems. The third unregulated contaminant monitoring rule in the, the mid-2000s, and that included six PFAS compounds with PFAS and PFOA as the primary compounds detected. And there it was about, um, about 0.9% um, and 0.3% of supply. So it was very low numbers, but they had um, what we've seen um, since UCMR3 is that the analytical methods have gotten, you know, the were already very good, but they're they're very um, they've gotten even better. Can detect now to very low part per trillion levels, so um, you know. Hence, you see a lot of sampling going on again right now. Um, so, right. So we do UCMR three in the early two thousands and twenty sixteen. EPA issued a, a new drinking water health advisory of seventy parts per trillion for combined PFAS plus PFOA. And um, agency has also prov is providing support for 10 states with site-specific PFAS challenges and problems where they, they varies with elevated levels. Um, so now we're coming up on as part of this data collection gathering at the federal level um, that informs you know, um, the process is UCMR5, which will start, they'll start sampling in 2023, but the lists are being developed now. They haven't been released yet, but it's anticipated there'll be a significant number of PFAS compounds on that list as well. Um, and EPA has also announced that they're proposing to regulate PFAS and PFOA under the Safe Drinking Water Act. Um, so that's the first step 
in eventually developing maximum contaminant levels. So there's no established rule as to maximum contaminants, uh, contaminant levels at the moment? So uh, not at the federal level where you're required to come comply with. I mean, people tend generally, you know, will try to want to meet those, you know, would want to meet that level. But um, there's a lot of action going on at the state level. Um, So a lot of states are moving forward with regulations of their own. Um, You know, for example, you know, uh, California, where I live, Michigan, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, you know, that's just a subset, just to name to name a few, and they're starting to set MCLs. So um, Michigan, New Hampshire, New Jersey, and New York, for example, all have MCLs now for PFAS FOA. Um, it's set at the, um, you know, they're all, I, I won't list all the numbers because people can just go look them up, but mm-hmm. all less than 20 parts per trillion, that's nanograms per liter each. Um, and Vermont actually has taken a little bit different approach. So this sort of shows you how the, the numbers aren't all the same. Each state does its own thing. They're approaching it a little differently. Um, is they have a limit of 20 parts per trillion for a sum of five perfluorinated compounds. So they're looking at it like a whole uh, toxicity of, as a regulating as a class. So that's still an area where research and sampling needs to be done to have... Um, yeah, so there's still yeah a lot of research uh, sampling for occurrence. You know, really understanding the the extent of of its occurrence is is ongoing in, in you know many many places. Um, like if you look at um, you know we and that's sort of a, an important thing to note, and that's like a little nuance of what's going on with PFAS is that we don't have a lot of long term data with these very low detection yeah. limits that we have nowadays. So that's partly why you see it's a little bit of a, a shifting strand. Like, and if you look at a map of PFAS in drinking water and groundwater, um, you know, you'll see higher frequency of detections in some states. And in some cases that will reflect population density, but in others, it may be a hotspot or what I would call a hotspot of PFAS manufacturing and releases the environment or, or an area where there's a lot of sampling going on and there hasn't been as much in other places. Um, but generally speaking, um, the states with the highest concentration of dots that you'll see on the, these yeah. um, occurrence maps are also where rares are being more aggressive and taking action to reduce human exposure. Okay. And actually, after you, we're going to bring on Jim Malley to tell us a little bit more about the treatment methods to get rid of PFAS and PFOS in water sources. Uh, is there anything you would like to tell us? Uh, anything like a, a certain challenge or a treatment method that you think is promising for PFAS? Um, yeah, I mean, you'll see as Jim dives into treatment that for, um, you know, and so I'm now speaking wearing my hat as a, as a process engineer. Mm-hmm. And I always like to think about the treatment uh, um, challenges and how we're going to meet them. Um, is you'll see as Jim dives into treatment that for um, best available technologies, you know, BATs, which yeah. is sort of the, what's recommended to use, are proven technologies, you know, granular activated carbon, ion exchange, and, and um, high high pressure membrane filtration, filtration reverse osmosis, they'll remove the material from the water, but they will not destroy it. So a lot of our, 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 our best tools um, f- 
for water treatment are just moving them around. So managing the residuals, the resulting is going to be another important environmental issue. And I think additional regulations are likely to, uh, you know, could emerge in that area. Um, and I think always keeping my, I'm always keeping my eye out. And I, I think others, you know, at work in this business are as well at the, there's a lot of research underway at people looking at developing feasible treatment technologies that fully destroy PFAS in water and residuals, you know, so as a process engineer, that's where I turn my, my nerdy technology. And, um, Certainly just thinking at the bigger picture, and this is just the world according to Aaron, you know, um, in my own life is looking at this emerging issue and, and, and other emerging contents, you know, is just trying to be a more thoughtful com consumer. You know, what's my part in all this is, you know, because we live in a very complex built environment. These chemicals and the thousands, you know, there's thousands of others that we regularly use to make our lives better in a lot of ways. Yeah. But as the old saying goes, there's no free lunch. That's true. Okay, then, Dr. Mackey, thank you so much for coming on and uh, answering all our questions. I think it was very informative. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Our next guest is Dr. Jim Malley. Dr. Malley is a professor in civil and environmental engineering at the University of New Hampshire, where he researches physical, chemical, and biological processes for the treatment of water, wastewater, and hazardous wastes. His ongoing research includes looking for innovative treatment processes for contaminants of emerging concerns. Hello, Professor Malley, and welcome to the podcast. We appreciate you taking the time for us. Hello, Michael, and happy to be here. Glad to have you on. Um, let's get it out of the way from the beginning. It's a question we've seen at IUVA conferences and one that I'm sure you've been asked a lot. Is UV or UV-based AOPs an option for PFAS? Yeah, it's always a good question when we get these uh, new co contaminants, uh, emerging contaminants. Uh, uh, Basically, we have not had a lot of success with that for a couple of reasons. Um, most of the uh, PFOS compounds, and as we were just saying a little while ago, there's maybe as many as 5,000 of them. Uh, yeah. They really don't react by direct photolysis. They, uh, they don't have a very large absorbance spectra. You know, you start getting down around 200 nanometers, you do 205, you do start to see some absorbance. But, uh, you know, at that low of a level, and of course, in vacuum UV, we see a little bit too. But uh, at that low of a level, water itself starts to become an interference. And then, uh, so when we create radicals, uh, either by uh, UV hydrogen peroxide or UV yeah. titanium dioxide or some sort of catalyst, uh, or even a UV iron, iron type reaction, uh, the oxidation um, proceeds very slowly because carbon fluorine bonds are some of the strongest uh, inorganic chemistry and uh, they're very uh, short, strong covalent bonds. So we're just not seeing the types of uh, uh, cost effective percent removals that we wish we were. 
So at the moment, even UV-based advanced oxidation is not an option for PFAS. It hasn't really proven itself out. Uh, I mean, you see a, a wide variety of reports, yeah. and under certain conditions, you might see, uh, you know, fifty percent reduction, seventy-five percent reduction. Uh, but again, uh, trying to make that practical or scaling it up to actual water matrices, uh, we just don't see it. We're not seeing a uh, a viable cost-effective option there. So if UV is out of the picture, what would you say are the most effective treatment methods for PFAS? Maybe GAC or ion exchange? Yeah, and that's become an emerging issue here in the US, especially uh, with uh, so many of the uh, former and current military bases having uh, issues from the uh, firefighting foams. And uh, the, uh, the full-scale answer right now, and uh, being here in New Hampshire, we have some of the uh, early sites, some of the early full-scale treatment facilities uh, has been granular activated carbon or some combination of granular carbon and ion exchange resin. Uh, but that ion exchange resin is a little bit of a misnomer because the way it's currently being used, it's really a one-pass ion exchange and then that resin is generally destroyed by a thermal process. So we're not really taking advantage of the exchange, so to speak. So I would say carbon ion exchange, and in some rare cases, reverse osmosis membranes are, um, are what are currently in use. And then literally hundreds of millions of dollars in research going on to find uh, perhaps uh, more sustainable, more cost-effective uh, remedial solutions. Okay. so. There is at least some processes that can reduce the levels of PFAS, but uh, to what level can they be reduced by these processes? And the level, the target has been uh, a bit of a moving on us, a bit of a state by state decision. Uh, the EPA had come out with uh, health advisories of 70 parts per trillion, uh, and those are sort of the benchmark. But many states have taken their own approach, their own risk assessment. Um, New Hampshire actually is some of the most stringent in the United States. They took a, uh, a transgenerational approach to this and basically uh, decided to regulate four different PFOS compounds and roughly all in the range of uh, uh, 12, 11, 15 or 18 parts per trillion. So if you think about it, think about contaminated groundwater in particular, which is our biggest problem. It might be as high as, uh, you know, 200 parts per trillion. Um, so we're trying to go from there down to a number like 12 or 18. So we're looking for 90, 95, in some cases, 99% removal. And uh, carbon can get us there. Uh, carbon ion exchange resin can get us there. But as you'd imagine, it's very expensive. Uh, are you aware of any cases where that has been done already? Yeah, we actually have full-scale facilities here in New Hampshire and in a few other parts of the country. I would say uh, a former military base called Pease in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, has a treatment facility. Okay. Uh, there's facilities in Massachusetts, Michigan. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're definitely operating and they're definitely having different performance. Um, 
And the real variable here is the carbon life, the replacement frequency of the granular activated carbon or of the resin. And, uh, you know, right now it's uh, very, very expensive, but it can be done. And the American public has been very concerned with the issue. It's become a social media and a political football. So they would like to see absolutely no EFOS uh, in the treated drinking water. And of course, as scientists and engineers, we know that zero doesn't really make any sense. But but it's been um, it's been a real challenge to meet their expectations. Okay. And I'd like to talk a little bit about the research that is still going on. Uh, in the article that you co-authored for UV Solutions, you mentioned that the need for innovative photocatalytic catalytic treatments or coupled photochemical or photobiological techniques should continue to be explored by UV technology researchers. Um, can you give us an overview where the research stands right now? Yeah, sure. Um, and I think the reason my, my mind uh, set on that is when we look at the granular carbon and the resin in our current state, it's a very expensive, uh, very non-sustainable approach yeah. in my opinion. So um, uh, as I say, the Department of Defense in particular is funding a great deal of research and you'll find um, research on uh, especially designed photocatalysts, uh, specially operated uh, photo conditions, low pH, uh, you know, different metal catalytic uh, reactions, maybe with the uh, chemistry or the chemical engineering literature. Uh, one that we find uh, promising or interesting, I have a student, Cassidy Yates, working on advanced reduction processes, where basically you take uh, a UV technology and you basically... Um, excited either with sulfite or iodide and you try to get reducing conditions um, another promising area and again by promising i mean it's at the bench scale i still have a long way to go to be competitive in a flowing facility but reduction processes perhaps uh, biological and then maybe uv sulfite uh, you know, those are kind of promising. We definitely see the usual research uh, funded on UV titanium dioxide or on UV, um, uh, you know, gallium catalysts. Uh, and then there's a lot of work coming out of Australia on uh, ozoflotation of PFAS. Um, there's always different groups looking at finding the right microbial, uh, you know, organisms to attack certain PFAS. Yeah. I'd say that's where the landscape is right now in those typical research areas. So you would say that there's a potential for photolytic treatments and in the future we might see UV playing a role in it. I think we want to keep trying and especially I happen to be personally a little excited about the UV um, advanced reduction processes. There's uh, there was a nice, uh, uh, state of the science sort of review in environmental science and technology on uh, ARPs or advanced reduction processes. And that sort of got our interest. And uh, I think so. I think we should keep trying. I think um, there are many advantages, as we all know, to different UV technologies. And uh, so I do see some hope. Uh, yeah. So in, so in your opinion, as you said, it's probably the photochemical or photobiological 
processes that have the most pressing need for research? I would say that's right. And of course, the overall research area that we still need an awful lot of work in is the toxicology of these PFOS compounds and some attempt uh, to come up with a treatment goal or treatment standard and acceptable risk. So uh, you do see a lot of interest also in the, um, you know, the risk calculations, the toxicology research. Uh, uh, but yeah, in the, in the UV field, I think, again, um, UV catalyzed reactions, uh, UV advanced reduction processes, those are, those are where we need to learn a, a great deal more. Um, you know, we're just learning analytically. Um, we think there's four or 5,000 PFOS. We can only measure yeah. about 30 of them. We only have the technology to really measure about 30. So all kinds of different areas of research need to continue to grow. So it's not only a question of the processes, but also to get a better understanding of the compounds themselves. Yeah, how to measure them, what levels are a, yeah. a health risk or a risk to the environment, uh, I just, uh, I think there's got to be a rather large and uh, extensive research agenda uh, to, to meet all the needs. So we, in the U.S., we talk about the unregulated contaminant monitoring requirements, um, and uh, those processes all have to take effect for PFAS, you know, figuring out how to measure them, how to treat them, what's their occurrence, what's their health effects. Uh, all those areas are pretty important. Okay, thank you. This was very informative and for me personally also, who hasn't worked with them before, it was very interesting. Thank you. You're very welcome. All right, that's it for today. Thanks so much to Dr. Mackey at Brown and Caldwell and Dr. Malley from the University of New Hampshire for joining the show. You can find out more about Brown and Caldwell on all major social media platforms. Links are in the description of today's episode. If you're looking for more information on PFAS, Dr. Malley's article on PFAS was published in the first quarter edition of UV Solutions this year. You can find a number of helpful resources linked at the end of his article. This show is produced by Dana Pusti, Nathan Moore does our sound design, and our music is by Justin Dossett and Stephanie Gora of Almost Lovers. I'm Michael Hoffman. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and keep checking out the podcast for more news from the UV world. <laughs>